Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate, and you'll hear plenty about me during the rest of this episode. But I just wanted to preface this by today we're doing something a little bit different. It is our 30th episode. I I cannot even believe for 30 weeks. For over an hour, we have sat down and talked about Lord knows what, of pop culture, of the zeitgeist, of 90s nostalgia, uh, an occasional anecdote or two, an occasional piece of business advice or two. But one thing that has remained consistent throughout is people wanting to hear more about the business side of Be There in Five. And it's challenging for me on many levels, one being it's such a personal roller coaster that's almost hard for me to recount. And I want to explain it in a way that's very honest and not just the highlight reel. So I've tr- I've attempted this so many times and just it, and I've never released it. But I think it all makes sense now because this Sunday is my birthday and I am turning 31 and I'm rounding out my 30th year of life. And I've probably mentioned before, I had a bit of a meltdown around my 30th birthday, and it was less to do with the age and more to do with a myriad of other issues I was wrestling with. And one of the biggest ones was feeling completely stuck, completely unable to move forward, and like I was completely striking out on everything I was doing in terms of moving my career to the next step. And it took me a long time to break that inertia. And it's it's interesting to tell the story now a year later and, and to really genuinely feel like I'm in a different place to be able to see yet another example of when you're at the bottom and you have no choice but to kind of wipe your slate clean and get back to basics. And for me, as you'll hear throughout this podcast, the basics were taking a risk, taking several risks on something that you know nothing about, you have no experience in, that everyone will likely make fun of you for, and it's very likely you won't do well at all, but to try it anyway. And this past year, I've done that with Instagram, with this podcast, with the project that I keep telling you I want to tell you about, but then I still can't. And I'm praying that by the time the end of this comes out, I'll be able to tell you the full arc because I think it'll be a good example of how you don't need permission to do the things you want to do. You know the skills and the gifts you have to offer the world, and you have to pursue them with steadfast determination. Because nobody else cares about your talent. Nobody else cares about your future. If you're not the one advocating for yourself and putting yourself out there constantly despite the risk of humiliation and failure... Nothing will ever happen. If you're not familiar with how I built this, it's a podcast on NPR that's really inspired me throughout the years where they interview entrepreneurs and in a much shorter time frame, they kind of go over the highlight reel of how they built this. And they do a segment at the end where they interview quote unquote normal people that I've pitched myself to many times and no one has bit. I've actually... Pitched myself to so many podcasts, so many conferences, so many open calls for entrepreneurs that have interesting stories because in my gut, I've always felt like mine was interesting and it's real and accidental and it comes from somebody with legitimately no experience or no connections. And I always felt like that could be helpful because so often what I feel 
happens in these type of public platforms is that the thing no one's saying is that somebody had serious connections and they're probably on that stage because they have serious connections. But what about the rest of us left hung out to dry, you know? So I guess that's my point, though, is that you you can't wait around for somebody else to tell you that you're good enough. We know in our gut what we're proud of, what we've done. And even though it's awkward to say it and we want to err on the side of humble, it's important that we tell our stories and it's important that we harness our narratives and we get to choose the way we talk about our past and we get to choose the way we live in the present and we get to choose how we're going to tell people our story in the future, which I think is so powerful because if you don't like where you are right now, change it. It's that simple. And there's a million excuses you can make in the world. There's always going to be something. There's always going to be unpredictable variables. There's always an element of risk, but you can make the decision to slowly chip away and make slow changes that seem nominal individually, but in aggregate, you'll realize you turned your entire life around while you were hardly realizing it. And I just, I want people to listen to this, not as like an intimidating business story, though, like, let's be honest, it's not, I'm I'm not that intimidating, but to understand that, like, the reason I can tell this on this public platform now to thousands of people is not because somebody offered to share their mic. It's not because somebody offered to share their stage. It's because I went and bought my own mic, plugged it in the back and talked until anybody was willing to listen. And eventually they are. Eventually they come. And that whole experience is met with more anxiety than one can imagine because you just don't know how you're being received, if anybody cares. And when I say mic, I mean in a metaphorical sense, like wherever you want your voice to be heard, whether it's on social media, whether it's blogging, whether it's having a podcast, whether it's any form of content, because the reality of being a business owner this day and age is you have to be producing your own content. And what's so incredible to me that if you're sitting here listening to this is that, well, the process of trying to convince yourself that you're deserving of a platform is somewhat excruciating at times. The reward is the people who choose to listen and choose to care even when nobody else is saying it's cool. And that's why if you're here listening to this, like from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank people enough for coming every week, for hearing what I have to say, for being on board and for getting into it, no matter how trivial the topic, no matter how inconsistent the quality. I I just, I don't know. I, I, I am forever grateful to those of you that came on early and not only told me that I deserve to share the mic or deserve to share somebody's stage, but you gave me the confidence to build my own stage. And that's something that I wouldn't have even thought was in the, within the realm of possibility at this time last year. And I hope that this is a good way to do the 30th episode to let you in a little bit more on what started all of this, because without the rugs, there would be no podcast. So if you will allow me to tell you this story of how I took $250 and turned it into over a half million dollars within our first three years in business, how I was profitable my second month in business, of how I took two SKUs, turn off your curling iron and turn off your straightener, and turn them into over 40 SKUs and doormats and artwork and consulting and other big projects I have coming up, of how 
I knew nothing about the flooring category. I knew nothing about retail, yet I was able to develop a high quality flooring product that was distributed in major online retailers and over 50 boutiques nationwide that sold in Nordstrom stores. Let me tell you the story of how I got into major retailers and then pulled out of them because I realized it wasn't right for me. Let me tell you the story of how I was being copied rampantly as soon as my second day when Be There and Five started getting press. And so I filed and won several of my trademarks on LegalZoom.com. <laughs> Let me tell you about how I spent under $1,000 on advertising in Be There and Five's entire lifetime. It has still been featured in national publications like Glamour and Cosmo, Teen Vogue, Self, Refinery29, Martha Stewart Living, BuzzFeed, Real Simple, Puff Post, the list goes on. I've been watching Good Morning America and we'll see my product pop up. I've been on TV. And within those, within that thousand dollars, allow me to tell you what was a royal waste of money that I should have never fallen for. Allow me to tell you how I went from never having hardly shopped on Etsy to two years later being asked out of millions of sellers to speak at an international conference telling other people how they should build their Etsy empires. And allow me to tell you how all of those things that ha have happened without ever taking out a loan, with having no debt, being 100% bootstrapped, never giving away any equity, and I am still 100% sole owner and the only employee. Allow me to tell you how all of those accolades aside, this extremely random product in an extremely random industry introduced me to myself, introduced me to a side of myself I did not know I had, unleashed more potential and more torment than I ever thought I was capable of, and strangely ultimately led me to my actual dream that I hadn't uncovered in many years that more recently has come true that I'll tell you about. Likely in part two, because I still am not supposed to talk about it, but apparently any day now. Sorry for the cliffhanger. <laughs> and lastly, allow me to tell you how. It doesn't matter how many emails go unreturned. It doesn't matter how many people out there appear to be doing so much better than you are. It doesn't matter if you feel like people are trivializing what you do or making fun of you for trying something new. It doesn't matter if it hasn't been done before. That doesn't mean that there's a good reason for it. It doesn't matter that if you don't have money, if you don't have connections, if you don't have experience in the field you want to be in. Allow me to assure you that if you are brave enough to build something, that regardless of outcome, you are creating, you are contributing, and you are adding value to the world in, in some way, shape, or form that nobody's negative words, nobody's rejection, and nobody's lack of interest can ever take away from you. And with that, allow me to tell you, in my own words, on my own show, how I built this. I'm Kate Kennedy, owner-founder of Be There in Five, LLC, and this is my How I Built This. I talk to people about my business or do interviews. 
And I want them to really understand what my business is all about. I always start with a few questions. I'll ask them, when you left the house this morning, did you lock the door? Did you turn off your stove, your coffee pot, your curling iron, your straightener? Did you remember your lunch? Did you feed the pets? Did, did you close the garage door? And these types of questions immediately give people a lot of anxiety, and understandably so. They give me anxiety even saying them now. And I'm at home. But everybody universally understands that feeling of already running a little bit behind and then desperately wanting to turn around and make sure that you did something that could be potentially destructive, whether your home is robbed or burned down or I guess forgetting your lunch, there are worse things that have happened. I would actively forget a brown bag any day in favor of a $14 chopped salad. But those types of questions really make people understand that sense of panic that drove me to start my business be there in five. And I hope that in considering those simple questions and that simple feeling will always serve as a reminder as you go throughout your day that these are the type this is the type of simplicity that a lot of great businesses are built off of. This is the type of curiosity and the type of innovation seeking behavior in the most ubiquitous, the most cluttered of categories that leads to necessary change in the world. Not saying I have any measurable impact on the world, but I think in reinventing a product that is in its most literal form, something you walk all over and on in its most metaphorical form, something that you don't respect. Um, I think it shows that truly innovation is everywhere um, when you bring it back to basics. So when I kind of start with those questions and bring it back to those basics, I then explain that that is the type of panic I was struck with on my way to work each morning that I was going to burn down my apartment. I truly had a problem remembering if I was going to turn it off because I wouldn't necessarily be done with my hair and then I would do other things and then I would forget to revisit it. And I shared a bathroom with a roommate at the time and sometimes I wouldn't have the chance to check and it just honestly, it became a thing. And um, I would put post-its on my door and I decided, okay, this isn't working anymore. I just, I need something staring me in the face, a little bit bigger, slightly less embarrassing and perhaps slightly functional. So whether you're listening to this as entertainment, just informational, or you're wanting to start your own thing, or you're also in the middle of your own thing, if you walk away from this podcast with one thing, if, if I could give you one takeaway, it would be this. In, in your everyday life, remember that innovation is everywhere, and it's not just intangible goods for commerce. It's in improving the way we live our lives as individuals, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat other people, the way we interact and approach things. Never let anybody tell you when trying to improve upon something that this is just the way things are done. This is just how we do things and it is what it is. I was told that in a performance review once in my corporate job that I just needed to accept the fact that I couldn't make everything better, that some things just existed in poor form because that's the way we do them. And that's when I knew it was probably my time to go because, well, this is actually my takeaway. You know, I digress uh, because I, all that said, I really believe that if you operate out of a place of curiosity and not fear in your everyday life, no matter what you're doing, there's no way you can lose. 
And I say that because you'll live an elevated creative existence where you start to look at things a little bit more critically and feel gratitude for what they are, but the power to improve upon them. And when we start to say to ourselves, what happens if I fail or I'm going to fail or X, Y, and Z will happen or we make assumptions or we, we project, we're writing fiction in our own heads that isn't productive for anybody, not for you, not for the rest of the world, because then you're denying them of your gifts and your skills based off of assumption alone and not facts. So as much as you can, approach everything you do with an overwhelming sense of curiosity. And instead of saying to yourself, what if it fails? Say to yourself, what if it works? What is the worst that can happen? Because that simple bordering on cliched phrase is what somebody said to me when I was sitting on this idea at the phase I'm talking about right now, where I was just like, uh, what if somebody did this? What if all the welcome mats didn't just have a bunch of flower pots on them and god awful italicized fonts? Anyway, moving on. And that's kind of where, what I was doing. I would think and talk about it, but then just never take myself seriously. But until I've really thought through the question of what's the worst that could happen, I was talking about this all the time and never doing anything about it. I had no answer other than I was going to lose $250 because that's about what it was going to cost for me to get materials to start. You know, I was 25 at the time. I was like, I don't know. It, it, it seemed like a lot of money that I could put toward like a flight to visit friends or, you know, a really great spa day or, you know, something that was a little bit more indulgent in short term and less like embarrassing to embark upon. But I digress within this just to, to, to remind you that that small fee and like the general embarrassment and just like laziness of not feeling like starting almost eclipsed me from this entire opportunity. Being worried about $250 almost stopped me from earning $500,000. When you think of it like that, it's like, well, duh, of course you should go for it. And I just, I don't know anybody that's ever gone for something that in retrospect, when they said, what's the worst that could happen? They wish that right at that moment, they should, should have stopped and they should have not done it. Because even if the payout isn't monetary, it, it is volumes and volumes and knowledge and experience and, and transferable skills that will inevitably be a jumping off point for the next point in your career or for you to build upon your existing business. So I kind of had observed that doormats, the, the category was marked with pretty dated designs. They welcomed you in your home. And I was really fixated on well, what if they saw you on your way out and reminded you of important things on your way out the door. Whether it was, you know, to remember your lunch, that you looked great today, that you were pretty, that to have the best day ever, or to turn off all of your appliances that could potentially burn your house down or to lock your door so you don't get robbed. And I named it Be There in Five kind of in the spirit of people on the go because I'm a very, oh, I'll be there in five person, but I'm like still in the shower. Like, why am I texting in the shower? And again, not a great life decision, but it all kind of came together. I'm realizing there's a type of person like me that has really great intentions that wants to be everywhere at once and their mind or their mouse kind of makes them digress to a point where they realize what time it is and then they find themselves in a full-blown sprint to their destination. And I am that type of person. I have great intentions, but my curiosity truly does create an ill concept of time. I will think of something and I have to know everything about it right at that moment. 
And that's why I sign off my podcast the way I do, because before I ever had a product, before I ever did anything, I sat down and I wrote my manifesto, if you will, that I believe I read on the first episode of this podcast, where I talk about how I don't think running late is a symptom of disrespect. I think it's often a symptom of people that just actually have the exact opposite uh, intentions and want to do it all and want to be at all of it. And just every day they convince themselves that time is on their side and it isn't. And I also wrote about how I wanted to be there in five. It meant more to me than selling doormats. It was a tongue in cheek representation of one of my, one of my biggest flaws. It was a representation of not having to be perfect. I've really felt strongly about using the internet for inspiration and not to further promote our feelings of inadequacy because at the time it was the height of Pinterest. And I just felt like, God, everyone is, is, is a Martha Stewart, is a DIYer, is all is a fitness goddess. And I am just a garbage person sitting here watching Bravo musing about a doormat biz. But that doesn't mean I was the wrong type of person. <laughs> everyone can be successful by their own definition. And when I sat down and wrote this manifesto and thought through the brand and the name, and I, I had the name I had thought of for like a blog a while back. Anytime I think of a good name or interesting idea for anything, I put it in an iPhone note and save it because you're going to need it and you're going to be so mad when you can't think of it. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what all made it real for me. And whenever I work with consulting clients, I always tell them like, once you get the name and you buy the domain and you get the social media handles and you start the kind of brand aesthetic, even though those those seem like they're not as important as the actual manufacturing and production, they actually are because it, it makes it real. It makes it tangible. It makes it something you want to work toward because it exists. And I was really, I, I actually didn't even have a lot of that at first. I just was on Etsy and I went on PowerPoint and made myself a makeshift logo. Um, I was my corporate job at the time I was in like a form of advertising consulting where we were helping large CPG manufacturers improve their TV and online ads and really kind of improve the entire uh, process of their media plan. So are you reaching the right audience? Is your message resonating among that audience and are they reacting in a way that converts them to purchaser? It gets the whatever ROI you're measuring your campaign against. And it was a really interesting job that I actually quite liked. And, um, but, it, and, and, but I was like getting creative on PowerPoint. I was like, you know, telling jokes in my presentation. I was kind of like doing anything to kind of bring out the, the side of myself that I thought brought me to life. And I think in any job that you do for a while, it, you kind of like lose small parts of yourself over time and morph into the version of you that you need to be in order to just perform that job well, support yourself, go home. And I'm just a person that always needs a little bit more. And um, so when my creativity was feeling maxed out, when I got that performance review, that was basically like, you care too much. I was like, I, I was I was in need of a different uh, creative outlet, if you will. I, I honestly never intended to leave my job until about two weeks before I left my job. But I'll, I'll talk about that later. So, yeah, it really was kind of a hobby, a creative outlet, something I decided I was going to try after thinking through what's the worst that can happen. And it was very low risk. So I figured I had to do the branding and logo and PowerPoint. It looked awful. I wrote my manifesto about what the brand meant to me. 
it oddly is like it still holds true today. And it's so wild to me because that was before I ever did any of this yet. I knew what the DNA of the brand was. I knew what I wanted it to be and what I wanted it to be about. And that's why I think there's something so raw and perfect about that inexperience because you aren't jaded. Like if I had to write my Be There in Five Manifesto now, I'd be like, I don't know, make more money than I lose. I don't know. Like try to sell other stuff. Because the reality of business is that it's just it's so up and down. And depending on the day, you just do not know how you're going to feel. And the purity of that mission is something that is so um, grounded in my soul and still speaks to me today that I still use on my about page, that I still use on my Etsy page. Uh, I love that I wrote it before any of this happened because the business isn't anything anybody else told me it should be. It's exactly what I wanted it to be uh, outside of any nuance or context. And um, I, so if you're starting something, that's where I encourage you to start. Think of a great name, make shift yourself a logo and don't pay people to do it yet. Or have somebody like me, like write it in calligraphy and make it just look professional and like transparent and have like favicons and different sizes for different social media outlets. And I can do that for you very inexpensively. And I'm not trying to sell my services. I honestly just want to prevent people from being tiny new businesses going to spend large amounts of money at graphic design firms. Ask somebody for a favor, reach out to somebody that has the skills, but doesn't do it professionally. And I guarantee they'll help you out. Because for me, that is like, it is so fun for me to do. But I will say if you are at all creative or designy, the one thing I did that I'm so grateful for is I sat down for probably a good two weeks. I bought a business license for the entire Adobe suite and I taught it to myself. And it, it, it's it, I'm still pretty bad at it. But like weirdly, I needed it so badly this year to, for something else I was working on. And like I've done all of my graphics, all of my logos, all of my designs and flyers for trade shows, all of my mailings, I all of my mats like I, I didn't even know at the time, but like I literally couldn't do this job without a really strong working knowledge of like Illustrator in design and Photoshop. So if that's something that is of interest to you or you could be good at, I actually really encourage you to get familiar with those tools. If that is not your strong suit, that is so fine. Spend your time on the things that you have a natural uh, propensity for because like, I hate anything managerial, anything secretarial, anything financial, legal, like, blah, those things that like, kill me, make me cringe. So, for example, I hire an accountant, but I do all my own design work. I know a lot of people that do their own finances, but hire out all their own creative. You, you almost have to make buckets of, like, things I love doing and would want to get better at and things I hate doing and will never like. And as you grow and evolve and have a little bit more money to spend you outsource as much as you can of the things you don't like and it will make your life a hell of a lot better because a business owner is like the CFO, the CEO, the CTO, the COO, the CMO, and you don't, and you do not want all of those titles. So pick the ones you want, outsource the ones you don't. So even though I mentioned I'd sat on the idea for a long time and I realized I was going to have to spend some money on materials to get these words on a rug the day I actually sat down and started and said, said, I am doing this was on a particularly bleak Sunday in the dead of Chicago winter in January of 2014. I'm so bad with dates. I, yes, 2014. When I felt myself towing the line between wanting to be like 20 something and relax my life away, but also being 20 something enough where the guilt crept in and told me I should be more productive. I 
actually, Greg was in, we were living together at the time. I had sat on this idea for about a year. He was in business school and he was a part-time. So he was going to his full-time job all day, nine to seven, and then going to class all night. And so I hardly ever saw him. He was doing his own thing. He was building his own community. I had been at my job for a long time. I, it was financially secure and I liked that they thought I was good at it and I liked feeling confident, but I wasn't necessarily challenged. I wasn't necessarily using my gifts. And, um, I just, I don't know, one Sunday, actually, I think that Greg and I, uh, no, okay. I have to be honest about this because I think this is a good example of how you need to channel your energy. It was like some argument you get in when you're like first living with somebody that was so stupid And it was about Splenda because I eat a decent amount of artificial sweetener and my husband cares about health and wellness. And I think that the data in those rat tests with the Splenda is poor because rats have a high propensity for bladder cancer and they're fed like 500 times an amount a human would ever ingest. So that paired with the propensity for bladder cancer, nadoi, they got bladder cancer. And I think that those stories are funded, you know, by other companies that wanted Splenda to go down. Whereas people that hear it in passing, my, you know, then boyfriend, now husband was like, well, I don't want you to die or get cancer. Can you like stop having Splenda? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I was trying to like, um, you know, just get him off my back. And he watched and then like I thought he left the room and then he watches me like put Splenda in my coffee or something. And he was like, you just told me you were going to stop. And I was like, oh, was that serious? And it was just, you know, a classic example of like, I don't know people tell you what to do and you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Great. I'm still going to live my life. And I didn't think I was being deceitful, but I think he did. And he went off to a, like a group thing. I felt like bad or like weird. Cause I guess technically I had lied to him, but also I was so, I guess, new to being like in a serious place that I didn't take what he was saying that seriously. And then I was like, Oh, maybe I'm like the bad guy. It was just one of those weird relationship moments where it made me look really bad, but I really didn't have any malintent other than to just be like, I feel like I know more about this topic than you. So I'd rather just nip the conversation in the bud instead of get on my soapbox about why those Splenda studies are bull. Maybe it was, oh, I forget, it was some sweetener. I, this is so not important, but I tell you that because great businesses are spurred from really stupid things. And if you have a stupid fight, If you're not getting along with somebody, if you're having just a day, a moment where you are just, I don't know, the the best thing you can do is channel your energy into a project, into a hobby, into some tangible form of something that just can kind of, I don't know, take the negativity away. And I had sat on that idea for so long that that day when I was like, I'm not going to see him for 12 hours. He's probably sitting there thinking about how I'm a liar. He's probably going to break up with me. And, you know, your head just spins. And I was like, OK, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to start. And I went to Home Depot and I bought five core doormats. And they weighed so much that I had to get an Uber, even though I lived walking distance. He took pity on me and helped me get them into the car and then to my apartment. They were way too big. I lied and said I was a contractor, and so they would let me get spray paint because they, uh, in Chicago, spray paint, you can't buy it because of graffiti and tagging. So I had read somewhere that if you say you're a contractor, they'll give it to you. I was like 24 and, you know, had like a full 
barrel curl and was like dressed in a biz, biz cash pleated pant. I don't think I really fit the contractor mold, but kudos to Home Depot, Depot for not, you know, putting their prejudices on me because I definitely was lying. Again, I'm not a liar. I just, you know, I, I do what I need to survive. I'm resourceful is what my mom always says. Um, but anyway, I get them back to my apartment. I take a straight blade I find somewhere and I draw um, letters on what's a kind of like overhead projector mylar material. And then I take a straight blade and I try to cut out the words, turn off your curling iron. And it is, it looks God awful. It's very hard to cut flimsy plastic. It's hard to cut it straight. Uh, I wasn't in a place where I was like really, you know, researching this heavily or gunning for machinery or laser cutting. I was just like, oh, yeah, how hard can it be to get five words on a mat? Um, it's pretty damn hard. Pretty damn hard. I uh, tried to do it with overhead projector material. I did it with cardboard. I did it with cardstock. I tried to freehand the letters. I went back and forth from my computer to the mat to out in the snow and it would spray paint turn off your curling iron on different surfaces before I finally did it on the first mat and I still have that mat and I remember it looking horrendous and the font was big and it was off center and crooked and there was some extra spray paint around the sides and I remember it looking pretty horrendous, but feeling proud of myself for trying. And um, I painted three of them for my now husband's sisters as like a test market, like as a silly Christmas present. And I'm sure, I mean, they looked awful and I'm sure they were like, but they kept them for years and bless their hearts. But that was kind of like, okay, I did this. I made a few. Um, and actually, see, I'm forgetting steps. So before I even did that, so I spray painted the quar mats and they were like so heavy and didn't even look good. And I couldn't do any like fine hand painting to really refine how they looked. And I was like, screw this. I don't want to make these really heavy mats. Besides, I'm actually not trying to take over the welcome mat. This is something that could even go on the inside of your door that you see in your house and doesn't go on the outside of your house especially because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to make these cheaply. And if they were a higher end item, they would need to be something that was preserved. So I then started looking. This is over months and months. I started looking at area rugs. I thought, well, you know, there's some plain low pile area rugs that might be easier to paint until I can get a manufacturer. And mind you, my this whole time, I wasn't really trying to be like a handmade Etsy artisan. I wanted these pre-made. Everywhere I called said I'd have minimums of 10,000 per skew per skew. So that just means the same mat, just saying, turn off your killing iron, just saying, turn off your straightener, just saying, don't forget your lunch, which, which were my first three phrases. I, I, I didn't even know if one person was going to buy this, much less commit to those minimums. So me even painting these was solely out of necessity that nobody would talk to me. The lowest minimum I ever got, I think was 2000 in the States. If I went to China, it probably would have been closer to 1000. But still, that's insane. And I really wanted to do what I could to keep it domestic and have a little bit more control over it, have the shipping times be a little less, and to just, you know, be proud that I was supporting local communities the best I could, especially because at the time I didn't really need the money. I really needed the outlet because I had a full-time job. And um, sometimes I think that's why it worked. 
because I didn't need it to. I think that my attitude, my energy changed once I started relying on it for income in a way that probably impacts my work that I can't even understand because there's a level of desperation and neediness that comes with needing it to be your income stream that I think eclipses creativity in ways we're not even realizing. We, we, we can't jump blindly at risks. And um, I think had I needed this to work at the time, I would have talked myself out of it because it seems so objectively silly to start a doormat company. Um, so when I couldn't get those minimums met, I said, okay, I'll just find some area rugs. Who, who's to say this won't work? I'll paint on them for now. I'm not a terrible artist. I'll get some prototypes up. And then if I can prove sales, somebody will definitely make them for me. I was so wrong. <laughs> I am still so wrong. Four years later, I still make over half of the business hand painted, which is insane because that came from a mistake. Like I never wanted to be painting these, but when I started to, and when they started selling over even the copycats that were $20 cheaper and could get shipped one to two weeks faster, I realized I had something and that in the mistake, I found something unique that nobody else was doing because I was taking really attractive area rugs and, and floor mats that go inside your house that aren't super durable and painting on them by hand in nice lettering phrases. And even though I did that out of necessity at first, to this day, nobody else's really look like mine. Everybody makes cheeky quar doormats. Some people make the type that I do, but I think when they realize how hard it is, they stop. And that's why people have really come and gone in the copycat space and why I have a lot more peace with it now. Because I know it's really hard because I've spent years trying to streamline the process. And anyway, so I named it Be There in Five. I spent forever writing that excerpt. I put up a turn off your curling iron mat, a turn off your straightener mat, and I believe a don't forget your lunch. And you're like really pretty, I think, came about a month later. And um, I took photos of them with my door. And those of you that know me well know that at the time I didn't realize it, but I would I'd keeping the collection of my hanging hearts on my doorknobs because it's like a really specific collection to collect hanging hearts for no reason. And I didn't know where to put them in my house besides my doorknobs. So I took these god-awful dark iPhone photos with my hanging heart on the doorknob and I put them up and you know what about my life I setting up an Etsy shop is not hard at all you just have to say the basic product specs have some okay photos have a description and hope for the best and I put a lot of effort into not the things I should have like my supply chain like my pricing like my photographs like my I don't know general shipping time or even knowing how to ship. I literally did not even know how to print a shipping label off Etsy, but I had read a book called The Lean Startup. And I was just determined that I was going to start this with minimum viable products using the least amount of resources so that when the market responded, I had the ability to be nimble and to adapt the business based on demand. Because after reading this book, it spooked me out of ever buying inventory. It spooked me out of ever thinking that I knew what people needed because what people need is what they tell you they need. The d data is what you need. And people spend a lot of time and money creating business businesses that nobody ever wanted or needed and find out way too late when they've already sunk the resource into it. So these were my prototypes. And I decided if this works, I'm going to figure it out as I go. And if it doesn't, who cares? It doesn't matter. I didn't even I didn't tell anybody I knew. 
because I think that if there's even a part of you that thinks people might not understand it, but you really, really do, and your market isn't necessarily the people around you, you need to do it anyway. And you, if what you need to do is to cut out the noise and not get people's feedback, then do that. I think we're all way too dependent on the anecdotal, uh, very specific advice of people in our immediate reference groups that isn't always applicable in the world of business. And we let it take over and, and let their entire opinion project on our ideas that have absolutely nothing to do with what that individual thinks. Yet in your world relative, it means everything. But in the business world, it means nothing. So be mindful of the advice you take. Um, and I think about a month in, I had the guts to be like, hey, I just launched my Etsy shop. And people were like, what? What What are you talking about? Like, this is funny. Then they were, my friends were all like so sweet and nice about it, whatever. Probably sits there another like two weeks or so. And at this point, I had, you know, done... So many iterations, I lost count, all looking horrible. The paint was bleeding. Stenciling wasn't working. I couldn't find a place for them to dry because it was snowing. I I spent $250 on nice brushes, a handful of test mats from like five or six different retailers, a few different kinds of paint and a container to fit all my supplies in. And I remember feeling like embarrassed and like this is a lot of money to invest in a fleeting hobby. Because trust me when I say I had, this was not the first, like I, I am literally Craig Conover. I am like sewing one day and I am knitting the next day and I am starting a brewery the next day and I am a lawyer the next day. And I remember just, I don't know, I just felt, I just felt like, like, what am I doing? Like, who cares? Like, why me? Why not? I'll just keep my job. Why am I trying? Like, this is just, I don't know. I, I can't even explain the feeling when... <clears throat> feeling you feel when it's so much output on your end but it's just so nothing in the grand scheme of the world and greg my now husband being analytic and being rational just kind of asked me point blank like what like what do you what have you got to lose 250 dollars like sell 10 and you've broken even but i mean that actually it was even less than 10 because i ended up pricing them probably too high because i realized how hard they were to make um, but that ended up being my market and my pricing strategy that I stick with today because I wouldn't have initially gone for the higher end, more disposable income market of a product that I know is priced high relative to others. But you got to pick two among price, speed and quality. It can't be cheap. It can't be fast. And it can't be of the highest quality. So when push came to shove and I picked two, which I think anybody should do in a manufacturing position. I picked a high pricing strategy and I picked high quality, but it ha- they were pretty slow. They took a really long time to make. <coughs> but even though Greg was like, sell 10 and you broke even, like I didn't even know 10 people that curled their hair as religiously as I did, much less know if like anybody was as forgetful as I was. And I just, I don't know. I remember if, if they're listening, specifically two people that were really kind of are my coworkers, Maria and Meg, that actually worked for me. At my full-time job, which is kind of weird for a boss to be like, hey, I have this side business idea. But they were like so excited about it. And um, I just I will never forget sitting at a conference table and then being like, that's a really good idea. Like, that is amazing. And Maria was at my wedding and is still a good friend of mine today. And um, I don't know. I guess that level of transparency is more my style because I wanted them to feel empowered to think of ideas and to have a life outside of work and to not be under the delusion that it was my whole world as well. 
Um, but I just, you know, you remember those little moments. Like I remember being having ribs at Twin Anchors and Greg's family was in town and he told them about my idea for the rugs and his sisters were like, just laughed. Even if for a second they laughed, I like, I hung on to that. That was feedback to me. And I was like, Oh my God, it's funny. Um, and then, so that first, I guess, four to six weeks, I, I had one sale. Um, and I texted my dad a screenshot and we were both filled with pride. I mean, I was never prouder to be like, Oh my God, something I created, somebody actually wants to pay me money for and um, I remember being so excited, but then immediately plagued with fear because I was like, wait, wait, how do I ship this? Where do I buy a box? Do I need branding? Like, how do I do? Do, do, I, do, I, do I do graphic design? Do I have to license an Adobe suite? Like, is PowerPoint cool? I, I have word art. Like, I, I hand wrote a note to my first customer filled with so much gratitude. It probably read as like being borderline, like guilty or suspicious. Um and then I, I got no other sales for quite some time. And I was probably like, oh, my God, this is probably the worst thing she's ever received. And nobody will ever buy from me again. Um, but then just as life always does, on a moment's notice, everything changes. And what I had done in that time, also not knowing how SEO or Pinterest works, I had just pinned the crap out of the three listings I had. And in the caption, tagged every keyword I could think of. I, I was working in marketing and advertising and digital media. I knew the importance of people finding you, but I didn't really know how that worked. Um, I worked more in traditional like video, pre-roll ads and TV ads in um, uh, kind of a different space than anything e-commerce really operates in. Tagged every word under the dictionary in Pinterest. Um, which at the time I was using a lot kind of in that blogger heyday, I speak about not that it's not the blogger heyday, but it was the heyday of when I was actually looking to bloggers as tastemakers, um, because I probably had disposable income. Um, and I just kind of left it out there. So if somebody needed to find me, if they typed in one of those words and was willing to scroll down probably 18 pages there, I would be. So I wake up one morning and I have a Facebook message from, my friend Hannah's friend who lives in Australia. And it's a, it's a link to a, it's like a thumbnail. It vaguely looks like my man. And she says, Oh my God, isn't this yours? And then, and to my personal Instagram, like a little bit beforehand, I had been like, Hey guys, I started this business and people, you know, were like, Oh my God, it's cute. But then I was like, why didn't anybody order one? <laughs> um, but you know, again, I actually prefer my friends never order my products because it, it puts so much pressure on me that I get nervous. And then I end up sending their orders out late because I obsess over them. And they probably think that my business is horrible customer service and, you know, uh, timing wise. Um, but I uh, woke up. I had that message. I look at it. Then I look at my email then I look at my Etsy and I realize overnight I completely sold out. I had hundreds of messages in my inbox and I had all of this traffic from Australia. And upon clicking on the link, a DJ, like a Ryan Seacrest of Australia, had posted a photo of my mat and said, any girls need this in like meme font over my turn off your straightener mat. And in less than 12 hours, when I had been sleeping, it had gotten over 200,000 likes in a single night. Talk about a focus group. Can you imagine if I had asked 10 of my friends who didn't straighten or curl their hair or do whatever and said, is this funny? And one or two of them got it 
and I was discouraged and thought, "Mm, this is the data I need. I shouldn't do this. That is why you cannot listen just to the people around you. Listen to the well-intentioned advice of others. Apply it where you see fit. But if they are not your market, you cannot listen. Because what I got that day was the focus group of a lifetime. I had 200,000 people co-signing my idea. I had 200,000 people agreeing with this nugget of a concept I had that I took on one day when I was worried my boyfriend was mad at me because I lied to him about eating Splenda. I, I... I had proof that this thing I worked on for like no reason because nobody knew about it for months actually had legs and that it gave me this sensation of somewhere in my gut like I I did know what I was doing. Why would I have pushed through and done all that work for literally no reason? I didn't even necessarily want to be an entrepreneur. I just kind of wanted a side hobby, an outlet. And seeing all of those people liking and commenting on this garbage photo of my turn off your straightener mat with my door and my hanging heart, it's just a moment I'll, I'll never forget um, for two reasons. One, as I mentioned, because of the ultimate focus group. Second reason, because I was not tagged in it. And I was not old enough to have the SEO for that combination of words where you would find me easily. Somehow people still did because, again, nobody else had done it before. However, the entire point of social media is strike while the iron is hot. And when people see something for the first time, that is the highest likelihood of conversion because it, it, it is novel. It's a novelty. And they're like, this is funny. This reminds me of so-and-so. I'm going to buy it now. After this, I'm not going to think it's funny because I've already seen it. And my products are very much, I think, reliant on that first view. I, I crazily try to message the people in Australia. It's then spread to New Zealand. It's hundreds of thousands of likes piling on. I am not only sold out, but I also don't ship to Australia. This was the most missed opportunity I could have ever had in my life. It, I could have made so much money in these 48 hours. But you know why I couldn't? I didn't know how to ship to Australia. I didn't even have international as an option in my shop. I had never made more than two at a time. I had no supply chain of rugs, of paint, of a means of getting on the lettering, of help, of of drying in the Chicago winter. I was working out of my tiny living room. I, I had nothing and I had no way to do it. And even if I had shipped to Australia and gotten all those orders, I probably would have bombed and gotten the reviews that would have given me no longevity. But instead of choosing to be like, what a missed opportunity, this was my one shot that I missed. I said, in the grand scheme of the world, I worked in market research. 200,000 people is, 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 is a, not even a dot on the radar. And there is so much more where this came from. And the next time I get an opportunity, I'm going to be able to harness it. And I just, from there on, my my proverbial baby was under the midsize SUV that I had to lift. And there was nobody else to do it. And I just had to figure it out. And um, that's what I did. I got mats from every single retailer I could find that looked even remotely close to each other because the one that I had decided on that was on my listings, I had gotten from Walmart and they only had like 10 in stock. And then they weren't, they weren't renewing their order. And their minimum for me was 10,000 units of this blank mat. So in order for them to reorder it, they had to be selling 10,000s of this mat plain. So I had nothing else to do. So then I found another mat, which is a mat I still use today. I, um, my mom flew into Chicago and she and I, I taught her how to paint and we 
worked for like three or four days straight, just trying to get out my first batch of orders and figuring out the best way to do it. When I first started, I was folding them, which is so insane to me that I would ever fold a mat into four corners, but I didn't know what to do besides provide flat rate shipping. I didn't have a label maker. I, I clocked the time it took for me to get one order out. And I realized in one week, just in printing labels on regular paper, cutting that paper and taping them onto boxes. Uh, if, if I, if I could cut that down, I would be saving myself almost nine hours of time. And I know that doesn't sound real, but it's so real. You have no idea how long that takes when you at a high volume of orders, cutting and, and taping individually stuff onto boxes. And I was having to assemble boxes, which now I don't even use boxes. Um, I, everything was just so pieced together in the most inefficient way possible. And I was working a full-time job that truly for the next nine months, I blacked out. I don't even remember uh, what I did or what I, what happened, but I do know that I slowly got better and I slowly would get more and more press that would give me more and more legs. And May Teen Vogue did a giveaway of one of my mats. I had a big article in um, Glamour, in Puff Post, in uh, several BuzzFeed articles. I I would get sent things left and right from things I wasn't even seeing. I didn't even have a Google alert on myself. Like the turn off your curling iron and straightener mats were like really taking off. And the hardest part too was that in their viral phase, like I said with that DJ that I eventually got in touch with a day and a half after the post, which there's nothing more gut-wrenching than seeing thousands of comments of people wanting to buy your thing and then not knowing where to go. It, it's horrible. Um, and then that, but that would happen constantly. Like Betches posted one of my mats and didn't tag me on Instagram. They had a million followers at the time. And I was like, are you kidding me? A small Google search will tell you who this is from. And to, to, deny a small business of the chance to get those clicks and views is just like such a shame to me. And I would get so frustrated with companies that wouldn't even try. And that still happens to this day. I just care a lot less because my SEO is better. And I, uh, Betches actually, I'll give them credit. I reached out and was like, Hey, th like this is my tiny business and I'm worried people are going to steal my idea. They're already starting to, can you please tag me in the photo? Um, but then I was kind of like, well, that's useless because Instagram, who, who cares the, if the post isn't in real time, no one's going to go back and look to where it is. So then they agreed if I sent them a free mat, they would post another one. And they did. And that ended up being huge for me. Um, uh, during this time, I still, it, it, it took me about 45 minutes all said and done to make a singular mat. And I was selling uh, hundreds hundreds <laughs> um, because I didn't want to stop it because I thought it was going to be short lived. So what I did is inadvertently make the lead time about four to six weeks, which I could not believe. And I disclosed it. The first thing on the listing said, this takes over a month to make due to high demand <coughs> and people still bought it. I would let them sell out almost daily. And I just be like, I'm done for today. I'm not selling more. I can't, I couldn't take it mentally. I had too much to do. Um, I couldn't produce. I couldn't source. I never felt such joy and agony at once. And I, when I was like, I can't paint these. I don't know. Like, how would I hire somebody? I, 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 I'm doing this from my home. I work nine to five. I'm not going to have people come here on the weekends that are strangers. Um, my mom was think my mom and I painted the first thousand. Thank God for my mom. 
um, who she still paints to this day. She really, without her, I like, I wouldn't be nowhere. I would have had to give up. Um, she really helped me get to a place of efficiency. And I took a week off of my real job at one point and just went down there and we cranked out about 80, which sounds crazy for like a four or five days time. And even my sister was painting. And, and I just have to say, like, I, I hear so many stories of people whose families, whose spouses, everyone around them are such skeptics. And I always tell people you need to cut out the noise. But I am so lucky because my own family was so on board and so supportive and not only supportive, like physically did the heavy lifting. My mom painted thousands of rugs with me. My sister came in town. My my dad assembled hundreds and hundreds of boxes and schlepped these to the post office and did everything in his power to help me. He He's my still to this day. He prints off all of my labels and assembles all my boxes. And a lot of my mats are still shipped from North Carolina. My parents have their own operation. At one point, the, their local post office was like, wow, we've never gotten more business, which filled me with pride that I was actually able to help their small town. It became this family operation that in a weird way was such a blessing because I had long been plagued by not being able to live at home. But I was it was a way I got to work with them and be closer to them, expense trips to them because we I would go down there and I would have a huge screen porch where I could dry 20 mats at a time. And in my house, I, I could dry like four or five. Um, it, it, I'm forever indebted and so grateful to my parents for becoming a headquarters of sorts during this time and their help. It truly made all of the difference. I cannot imagine if they trivialized it or if they said they didn't believe I could do it or if they even had a moment of hesitation. And to the people out there that are the major stakeholders, if, if you if you think you are metaphorically in the board of directors of somebody else's life and that, life and that they value your input so wholeheartedly, be so aware of the advice you're giving and the support you're giving. And if its intentions are to manage their expectations so they don't get hurt, if their your intentions are that you're jealous, if your intentions are that you just don't have the time or energy to put into it, whatever you can do, just support them. And know you don't have to be doing the physical labor, but like during that volatile of a time, you really need reassurance and you really need people keeping you afloat when you can't do it yourself. And I just need to shout out my family. I, my brother, like he set my entire business up legally. He gave me so much free legal advice. I literally probably owe him thousands and thousands of dollars, like five figures, like uh, that I'll never be able to pay unless it's in like hugs and sending him cream sodas on prime now, which I have done. Um, my sister-in-law for like unwaving support and promotion. She had two young children and was like asking me how I was doing. And my sister who was going through like an incredible life transition too, but like did everything in her power to paint mats. And to this day, I think when you go to her Instagram profile, it's my business URL. Like it really does take an army and it doesn't always need to be an army in the way you think it does. It just needs to be a, a, group of people that trust your ideas, your instincts and your execution in a way that doesn't make you fundamentally question what you're doing and people that are selfless and kind enough that can separate themselves from whatever motivations they have and just be there in whatever capacity you need them. And I, I, I just, I could not be more grateful 
And I cannot emphasize enough how important that was to my journey. I, I cannot hate that word more from The Bachelor, the word journey, but I, I mean, I guess this is what this is. I, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I have to have these made. And I took my mats to every printer I could in Chicago, which, mind you, I couldn't even meet the minimum for mats. So every once in a while, whatever store I was buying them from, they would run out. I couldn't order them separately. I had to wait till they have restocked. So I just have to find a new mat that looked vaguely similar. But then I would take those mats to every screen printer and every printer, any every business of any kind that made stuff and just be like, please, can you help me? How do I get words on these low pile area rugs? And people were like, people don't put words on low pile area rugs. And I was like, yeah, but I want to. Like, does that mean that if nobody's doing it, does that mean it's crazy for me to be trying? And they were like, I don't know. It's a lot of work. Like, just have them made on Quar mats. And I was like, no, I think these are prettier. I think people like them. They put them inside. Like, can you just try? And I was met with no flexibility, no creativity. I was just told, no, like, leave us alone. I was like, but you don't get it. These are taking off out from under me. And someone's going to steal it and do it better than me. And I just, I just, I need one person to help me figure out how to, how to put these words on a mat in a faster way than I or my mom can. And no, nobody cared. And it was that moment where I was like, okay, well, just because nobody else does it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I will just commit from now on to making it work that we hand paint doormats. It was no longer a means to an end. It was my business model. I was so tired of being told no. I was so tired of being told I had to put down thousands and thousands of dollars when I just did not believe that had to be the case. So I went with good, not better, not best, just good enough. And I get, I, I, so for some unknown reason, halfway through that year, I switched jobs at my company and do a much more challenging job that required a month of training in Florida. This is the black belt position with operational efficiencies that even though I didn't start it with the intention of streamlining be there in five and it ended up being an invaluable skill set that even though I wasn't very good at it, I'm so grateful for the opportunity because at the time I literally had zero intentions of ever quitting my job. There was never, ever going to be a point where I was going to do this full time. I was going to write it as long as I could make the additional income, do something fun with it, say I started it and move on. And I say that to be honest, because I didn't always have these great entrepreneurial dreams. I just was a person that knew they had good ideas and had the willingness to figure it out. More and more time passes and sales aren't slowing down. I'm still selling out and it's about eight, yeah, about eight or nine months in. It's right around my birthday and I'm making enough money on these because I've like no overhead. My sweet mom's making them for free. I... I'm not spending any of the money I make because I had a salary and I make like what I thought was the ballsiest decision I ever could. And I lease a 800, no, maybe 600 square foot office space in an office building down the street. I am between a lawyer and a therapist. They, every day they'd walk by and be like, what is this? What are you doing? Like all I could do was like crack a window. I guarantee it took years off my life inhaling fumes um, I would spray the mats with the fumes when my contractors left, but I didn't want them at risk of it. Cause I, I, it's like, it's weird when you're working with materials like this, but then I realized, then I learned more about VOCs and all my stuff's very low VOC. So we're cool. Um, but I put an ad on Craigslist and vaguely said, I'm an Etsy shop owner. I just, I need help with like a very obscure job. It requires a level of artistry, but nothing professional. It requires a level of patience and enjoyance of doing repetitive work. 
you know, call me. I got over 130 emails for that terrible job description uh, that could not be more ambiguous of people being like, yeah, awesome. I want to get paid by unit and do something that's just kind of like consistent and relaxing and that I can get better at. And I was shocked that that many people wanted to paint rugs. For anybody that worked for me would tell you it is not glamorous. It is so repetitive and I'm sure very taxing. But what I ended up doing because I didn't want employees, I didn't want the liability, I didn't want the payroll, I, I couldn't deal um, with that because I was, you know, again, not trying to do this full time. So I hired them on a contractor basis, they could come in and out of my studio whenever they wanted, I provided the supplies, I provided a list of what I needed. And throughout the week, I had at first two girls, and then I added a third, and then I added a guy for a month, and then I added uh, another girl that was friends with another one. They went to DePaul. And at one point I had five people working under me in like the height of the first holiday season. I was selling thousands and thousands of dollars worth of doormats a day. It just working on it from about six to midnight every night and um, leaving lists for the girls and one guy that worked for me during the day. And the problem was these aren't easy to paint. And I'm such a perfectionist that they'd do them, I'd pay for them. And then I'd spend hours at night doing the finish work and going over them and straightening every letter and making everything proportionate and all the stuff I shouldn't have been doing. But at the same time, I didn't feel that my perfectionism was really, I, I didn't feel like I had the right to project it onto them. Because at the end of the day, customers weren't noticing. I was just obsessive about quality because I knew that these were expensive. And I knew that if you waited a month for a product and it wasn't perfect, that, that to me was like unethical. So I was spending an exorbitant amount of time on the quality of the way they looked. I actually thought it worked out really well to have this contractor model. And that's what kept me afloat for the next year while I still kept my corporate job. So the first two years I was still working. Um, it was no, the first year and a half. God, I'm so bad with dates. Uh, I honestly don't really remember. I think it was two years. Was it? Whatever it was, it was terrible. I, I got to a point where, and I, this is like the number one most asked question is, when did you know it was time to leave your job? It was time to leave my job when my side hustle needed me more than I needed it. Because I think the biggest mistake you can make is leave a job because you're sick of that job and you want to do something else. As I have said earlier, your energy, your attitude, your motivation, your execution completely shifts when you go from a nice to have to a need to have. And when I needed the money, when the pressure was on, it was completely different. And I waited until the absolute last minute where I felt like something was being lost from the business, from my life, if I did not take this chance and pursue it. But full disclosure, I saved a crap ton of money. I banked my bonuses. I saved I saved a lot of money so that if this all failed, I could at least float myself for a good six months to a year of rent and expenses. And I know not everybody's in that position, but I would have quit my job a lot earlier, but I made a conscious decision that I wanted to be able to get back on my feet. I wasn't engaged at the time. I lived with Greg, but I mean, you know, as I've talked about too, when you're in that era where everyone around you get is getting engaged, but you're not, and you're kind of like panicking and thinking like something's wrong and really like, I, guys, just, it, 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 sometimes it takes time. You can't impose your timeline on everybody. And his intentions were always good and they were there, but you know, I didn't want to rely on him. 
I wanted to split rent. And uh, I made the decision to quit when, honestly, it was a combination of two things. I had saved the money. I felt like my business needed me, and I was really going to lose something if I didn't put my energy toward it. I felt like my physical health and wellness was suffering. I had a big scare at Thanksgiving um, during like a, that was kind of the start of a busy holiday season. I was so frazzled. I, I hadn't eaten all day. I had worked all day. I was in my studio all night. I had three girls there working in this tiny space. I felt like I was going to pass out. I was so I was running to get these orders to the post office. And then I was running to go get um like a smoothie from protein bar because I was famished and I was just moving so fast. I wasn't even like paying attention to like my life and it was icy and I was crossing the street to go get food. Um, and I think I had packages in my hand. I don't even remember. And, um, I slid on black ice and there was a car coming at me full speed. And I have, by the grace of God, I was wearing a black jacket and black pants and black shoes like I do every day. And it was nighttime. And they and if you live in Chicago, you know, there's these like five, six way insane intersections that even if you have a walk sign, someone can still come flying and take you out. And I did have a walk sign, but I walk really fast and I did not know it was icy. I slip. I fall. I see the car coming at me. I'm truly like, well, this is it. I've never had that feeling in my entire life. Um, And the car slams on its brakes, stops right in front of me, and the bumper taps me on the shoulder. Like, I can still feel that bumper tapping me on the shoulder. And for some reason, I was spared. And I got up, looked, and I just, I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what I said. I don't know what I did. I just went into the protein bar on Clybourne and and wept. (laughs) And I still feel bad about it to this day because I just can't believe I would have ever like risked my life or my well-being. But I didn't know I was doing it. And I and like so much of like life, I think, is is uh, signs you need to pay attention to. I think sometimes whether it's people, whether it's the universe, whatever you believe in, I do think that there are sometimes greater things trying to slap you in the face with a message that you yourself aren't able to see. And I'm so weirdly grateful, even though it scared the crap out of me. And I cried for two days and I went home to Thanksgiving and I just saw my mom, my sister in the airport and I wept and I was like, I almost died. Like it it just, it, it was one of those, it was just like a come to Jesus moment. And that was a big part of why I left my job a few months, I guess, two or three months later. Um, I, I really, I just had gotten to the point where I felt like I had something and I had something sustainable and it could really be something. And I would just always wonder if I didn't try it, but I would never, ever tell somebody to do that if they weren't financially set up for it. Because even though you shouldn't put your well-being at stake, if you can't handle at least a year of doing both jobs, you're not cut out for the job period because that is just the tip of the iceberg there. The, the amount of work that goes into being solely responsible for something and being able to rely on nobody else on your sick days, when you almost get hit by a car, when you want to take off, when you want to go on vacation, when you need to meet a deadline, when you're trying to get out orders, like you just work around the clock. And if that life isn't for you of having two jobs, 
then the then having one all consuming job after that is not for you either. It's never going to get better. You're if you care, you're only going to work harder and harder on it and you have to learn how to balance and manage the consuming nature. Um so yeah, my long-winded answer to this question is did you keep it as a side gig for as long as possible? Um have you figured out what is and isn't working before it's your sole source of income? Because if you do that, you're setting yourself up for success. If it's not yet a working or viable business model and you quit, that is something I cannot advise you to do because it really could go either way. And I, even though I want to tell you to take the leap in money is an infinite resource and Jen Sincero, you know, you're a badass at making money. Like I get all that stuff. The reality is like we live in a world where you need money to live. And especially if you're supporting your a family, yourself, whatever. So make sure you keep it as side gig as long as you can. Make sure you crunch the numbers. It is going to be a long, long, long time before you pay yourself. I still don't. I I live, I it's it's like this weird thing where so much of my life is my business. So uh, a lot of it in that sense is somewhat expensed because Everything I'm doing is to further my business. Now I'm not going on like trips and fancy things, but like I have a lot of business meetings over dinner and I take a lot of Ubers to go get supplies and to go to my manufacturing partners or drop shippers. And, you know, I guess that's kind of the weird part about your life intersecting with your business. But I just I don't take out a salary. I can't. I I I have a great margin but it's not a it's it's just like this crazy thing I I don't even know how to get into that but there there's a level of scale you have to get to and a promise of future liquidity of somebody acquiring or buying you and um I that to to be at a point where you're really making good good money and a way to drive your costs down and I've never really to be honest I think I could have pursued making them in China harder. I think I could have pursued a lot of lower cost options harder, but the risks always outweighed the benefits and I've just kind of held it closer to my chest um, and kept the costs higher than maybe I should at times, but should have at times. But I also think I subliminally did that because I realized there was a point where I did not want to be running just a rug empire, which I'll get into. Um, And lastly, on that note, just please ask yourself, are you quitting because you hate your current job or because your business needs you so badly? If it is the former, do not do it. I get that you hate your job and I get that you want to be on your own. But once you're on your own and nobody's telling you you're doing a good job and you have no structure and you have no paycheck and you have no end in sight of you not having a paycheck, you're going to miss that crappy job. Why? Because you'll realize it doesn't matter. The one thing getting out of your day job gives you is perspective that when you're in so deep in your job, and you think you're so indispensable and important, the second you leave it, they never contact you again and you realize it never mattered. And I know this is bad advice, but as much as you can still deliver and do everything you're supposed to at your full-time job, but just care a little bit less about hating it, about your situation, whatever, look forward to feel empowered by the concept of if you work hard and can make the money and can crunch the numbers and make it work, that then your reward is going out on your own and then you'll appreciate it all the more. But if you're leaving because you hate your other job, your new your side gig is not going to succeed. That motive, you will forget that in two weeks that you hated your job. Um, and 
the other piece of that is, are you okay with your passion becoming your job? And then your job requiring you to outsource your passion. Because I loved the heads down work of painting at times. I loved the interactions with my customers. I loved owning my own business, getting my own messaging across, sharing the good word of be there in five that I would poetically put on every card about how it means so much more to me than selling doormats. To me, it was a representation of not having to be perfect. It was a business about one of my biggest flaws. I wanted to like help women on their way out the door. And like, I wanted it to be like this bigger thing. And I had so much passion in it, but then realized quickly that if I ever wanted to have any remote success in it, the actual making of the mats was something I could not do. I had to be doing managerial tasks. I had to be doing strategic tasks. That sucks a lot of the fun out of it. So you have to be okay with other people executing the creative part of your business and you becoming you need to become passionate about running it. And about two or three years in, I was no longer passionate about running it. And that's what I had to address. And that's why I had to scale back a lot on the kind of net at which I was casting these mats out in. And it was getting bigger than I wanted it to. Um, but again, I'm getting too ahead of myself. Um, so on that note, I mean, I'm going to miss so many things. This is like so hard to tell um, and remember. But long story short, after being turned down by every manufacturer on the planet, I, got, I just abandoned the idea of ever having them be mass produced. But my mom was in a gift shop in Ohio and saw a similar type of mat that I was making, but like that was totally different, totally different branding, vibe, mostly welcome. It was just like a different type of floor mat. She buys one. I look into the manufacturer and for the first time ever, I get a response. It's like, yeah, sure, let's talk. And they start to talk to me about making these mats and their minimums are like a hundred. I was like, oh my God, praise the Lord. the prices still weren't great, but I just could not even handle the idea of like, oh, well over a year in having hand painted thousands of these uh, touching. I mean, truly, just all hours of the night, just minute little tweaks to lettering. Truly, truly uh, work. I'm embarrassed. I did at one point that I would not do now, but um, I just I don't know. I was so scared of somebody saying it wasn't perfect. And When I figured out I could have these made there, we started making the bigger phrases and I decided I'd split my business into two pieces because I was very scared of abandoning my Etsy handmade business people. Because even though I didn't send set out to do that, once I was doing the hand painted business, I took such pride in it. I I found such community and other artisans. I loved the idea that people were willing to wait a month for a handmade product that wasn't even very durable, but was beautiful. And that was made by an artisan who cared. I couldn't believe that the priority was still there in a world of Amazon Prime. And I wanted to do right by my customers and by the handmade community. And I almost found myself in a place I needed to be. You can't always get what you want, but you can, if you try, sometimes you get what you need. I really believe that. And in making mistakes, in having nobody talk to me and in having every door slammed in my face, I created a niche in a luxury hand-painted high, low, medium pile area rug market. And I was scared when I figured out how to manufacture them. So I decided I wasn't going to jump ship. I said, these are going to be just our popular phrases. We'll hand paint everything to pilot it. And eventually we'll wean off and we'll do all the design work. We'll do all the fulfillment, shipping, customer service. The handmade aspect of our business doesn't have to just be in the production. And Etsy at this point was allowing outside manufacturing partners. Um, And I started making like four of the phrases. 
I decided they would be priced about $15 lower and they'd be shipped two weeks faster. So then I was presented with this crazy thing where I had two mats with the same phrase. One was about a monthly time would not last as long. It wasn't durable. It wasn't waterproof. It wasn't outdoor. It was indoor. It was high pile. It was like a large area rug that I painted. Then I had the exact same phrase on a slightly smaller, but sharp looking mat that I even thought looked better at times that you would get two weeks faster for $15 cheaper. Guess which one sold more? The expensive one that took forever. I could not believe it. I thought my entire business was going to shift to this quicker manufactured mat that I had been waiting forever to find somebody that would make and I could just change over my business and be done with it. And it didn't move. And what that told me was, sure, there's a market for people that need a last minute gift that, that, that value speed and that value price. But as I talked about, when you pick two, quality, speed, price, there was an X factor with the quality that I had inadvertently made that people were hooked on and that that's where the demand was. And that's why I, I say you cannot, the minimum viable product model is so crucial because had I just assumed all anybody cared about was price and speed, I would have bought a crap ton of inventory with my big SKUs and just started out there and they would have blended it with every other mat in the market and never would have become what they were. But they became what they were because they looked different and they looked different because I, I had a great deal of air at the onset. Tugboat is having a meltdown. One moment, please. So there I am having worked painstakingly to shift my business to this model that no one cares about. Um, and I am still stuck with all the same problems I've always had, except now I've left my job and I am starting to get wholesale offers from major, major retailers. And keep in mind at this point, I am two years in one and a half, two years in. I've never spent a dime on advertising. I've only gotten organic press my friend Elizabeth set me up with an interview for an awesome Chicago news station, which taught me how to talk about it simply on video. And it was such a pivotal point for me. I, um, I randomly, my sister-in-law texted me and said, you were on Good Morning America because they were showing Jennifer Aniston's curated account of her living proof hairline. And the first, one of the first things she had Instagram was my turn off your straightener mat. And I was like, oh my God, what? Like, did I send her that? Like, I, I didn't even know who was buying these things. I um, was sending them to reality stars. I, 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 the, one of the biggest ones I cannot believe is that I sent a mat to Kristen Doty before I started watching Vanderpump Rules. And I had no idea who she was. And if you know Vanderpump Rules, you know season one or two Vanderpump Rules. Kristen Doty was the star. I mean, she's still a star in my heart for buying one of my products full price and not asking for a discount like every other person does. But, you know, just to, yeah, kind of frame the sitch. <laughs> um, but... It was just still, I was getting consistent press and consistent interest. And I think because of that hand-painted style, people just weren't able to sustain copying. And this was around the time when people were using my images, using my copy, where I was e messaging them, emailing them, telling them to stop. And they were straight up ignoring it or saying, you don't own this phrase, which I didn't, and just not caring. Like, it is amazing how horrible people exist that just want to capitalize off of your blood, sweat and tears. And it truly, I've lost years of my life on it. This is when I start to pursue the trademarks. I find an incredible law firm in Chicago on Yelp. I, my accountants from Yelp, my lawyers are from Yelp, my uh, filing attorney and person that did all my initial paperwork, which is the one small business connection I had that was hugely helpful is my brother who is an attorney and 
Thank God for him. He was like, uh, you need to be an LLC. You need to protect yourself legally. You need articles of incorporation. You need to make sure this name is not taken. You need to file all of these reports. I mean, he he got me set up in ways that that alone would have made me feel like I was drowning. And I am forever grateful for that. Everybody has their person or people that can help them through those, you know, early stages where just uh, there's a few things you need help with. And otherwise, it just is incredibly overwhelming. However, my first trademark that went through and got approved and registered was through LegalZoom. Never even met with a lawyer. So that being said, it's not always as hard as it might seem like it is, especially if it's uniquely original and you have the proof to back it up that it is yours. I think when you're fighting for something that, you know, is pretty common, it's a whole different story and requires a whole lot of legal fees. Um so that's a big energy drain at this time. It's a big energy drain that the the printed mats aren't selling as well as I would hoped. I still have just as much work. I'm managing all these people. I don't really like to manage people. Uh, it, it's not my strong suit. I've like I've said, I'm a I'm a like creative director. Like I want to manage projects, ideas, and things. And I and managing people is just not my strong suit. And um. I just, I don't know. This is, was a very intense and overwhelming time. And I, 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 I start, I start to panic. I start, I start to panic after leaving my job. And then I start to embark upon wholesale offers. And this is, this part of the story is where for the first time, I think I, I actually went wrong. And I will tell you about that in part two. I was going to do this in part one, but I've, Decided I was going to tell this in detail. I know how I built this with Guy Raz is like 20 minutes long. But you guys said you want to know this story in detail. So I'm going to tell you story in detail if you want it. Um, so anywho, I'm going to sign off with another Sia song. I started with an instrumental of uh, Titanium, David Guetta featuring Sia because I love that song. And in telling my entrepreneurial ventures, it just came to mind. Shoot me down and I won't fall. I'm titanium. I am the farthest thing from an emotionally strong person you'll ever meet. Yet in my gut, I still feel a strength in knowing my ideas are good and my execution is good. And that all I have is that there's nobody else like me. And I guess in that sense is what has always made me feel like titanium. Even in my worst moments is that knowing that I... And the only person that can execute the way I can and everyone else that was trying to copy me and steal my stuff and that was getting my sales and they got a lot of them and they still do. Uh, they weren't be there in five. And I had to focus on how to make the brand more than just the mats and figure out if I wanted to then make the transition into a major, major rug empire. And while the me at the beginning was talking from a place of tug yeah truly if you uh, point number six if you want to leave your full-time job and st just do your side hustle do not get a dog I, I i got him when i was in a low period when sales were slow love him forever truly no worse business you could have than one that involves the floor when you have a pet just saying anyway so the beginning of the centered version of myself I felt like how I feel today is that is so incredibly proud of how far I've come and all the stuff I've been through 
and fighting through so much of the uncertainty and ambiguity that I truly do feel I am a level of titanium that I would have never even known had I not sought out something so abstract that I met a new side of myself. But in real time, in this part of the story that I'm telling that I'll continue later, I was more Sia Chandelier. And you know, I've talked about this song a lot on my podcast, but truly, I think about Maddie Ziegler dancing maniacally in that nude bodysuit in that room, like hitting her head against the wall and going crazy and like looking at her hands. Like that was me. That was me getting hit by the car. That was me being like, this is something, this is nothing. I am great. I am terrible. Well, they're going to buy this. They're going to love it. They hate it. What am I doing? I'm spending so much money. I'm losing money. I'm getting a ton of money. Like I, it was just so, so intense. There was a lot going on in my personal life at the time. I literally don't remember the entire year of, was it 2015? 20, I, 2014 to 2016 is a true blur. In 2016, I got engaged and was forced to focus on planning my wedding, which was very helpful for me to compartmentalize because I'm, I'm a bit intense. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to round out this piece with Chandelier. I did want to swing from the Chandelier's. I wanted to live like tomorrow doesn't exist because I had no choice but to piece together the hours and the minutes of the day and hope for the best. And I know no children were dying and I know this job wasn't important, but we only know our own experiences. And my experience was that of a giant interpretive dance of a person losing their mind, wanting to swing from the chandeliers. So with that, um, I will return shortly. I am fearful that this is too long. This is going to be a three hour series. I don't know if you're in the market for this. I don't I don't know. I, I don't know when I'll continue this. But for my 30th episode, this was so incredibly meaningful for me to record this and to tell my story and I don't even, I feel like I missed a lot. I don't even know if this was exciting. It really was in real time. Um, but I mentioned this on Instagram last night. I started my podcast unknowingly 31 weeks exactly before my 31st birthday. And um, this is 30. And as I round out my like 30th year of life, I think it's really cool that I'm able to tell my story in a way that's much longer form and much more personal than I've ever been able to in, in any fleeting abridged interview. And um and my 30th birthday, I had a true career meltdown about where I was going and what I was doing. And so much has changed since then that I'm excited to be able to tell you about soon. And um, I, I just think, you know, nothing's a coincidence. I think it's it's I'm so excited and grateful to have this outlet to share information, to exchange ideas, to hopefully serve as some semblance of an inspiration to people questioning if they have the authority to be able to follow their dreams because there's nobody that's going to give you the authority. But if for now you are allowing me to be that authority, let me tell you that you do and you have permission and this is your permission and you must do it and you must try. You must not quit your job, but you must use your spare time to find it in you, to have the will to figure it out. And if you have it in you, amazing. I salute you. If you don't have it in you, who cares? It doesn't matter. No one ever has to know. Get back to your normal life. Be so proud of yourself that tried. The one commonality I see among any entrepreneur, business owner, creative person, person that chooses to live their life in a way that they're always challenging norms and challenging their ideas of the conventional ways they spend their time and just trying to live a more interesting existence is that they are brave. They're brave because they're doing things that other people aren't. And the first thing anybody's going to do when you do something that they don't and they feel uncomfortable is make you feel stupid. But that's their loss because all of you out there that are listening to this, that are thinking about doing something on your own, I don't care if you're 
making key chains. I don't care if you're saving lives, doing something on your own and going out and saying, I have something to contribute. I have talents to share with the world and I don't care what anyone says. And I'm going to see if this works is so incredibly brave and admirable in any capacity. And I am proud of you and I give you permission and I'm excited to see what you do with all of your incredible ideas. So I will sign off for now. I'm just going to wrap it up because I could talk for hours about this. I just get so I just get so excited. Um, I, 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 all I want in life is for people to know that they can do it. I'm just they, they, you can you can anybody can. If I can, you can. I'm just I'm not special. Cannot drill that home enough. I am a person that spends all of their time listening to uh, violin versions of popular music, apparently. But this time I'm going to play the real song. All right, guys. Hope you have a great night. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was a, a good use of your time. It certainly was of mine. And I will put up the second part next week. Then back to regular programming. And as always, as it was at the beginning in my manifesto, and as it is now, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Don't come back till I